I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the New Health Club podcast. The New Health Club podcast is where the conversation around the new age of mental wellness begins. I think that psychedelics will play a big part in this, since we are talking about a new lifestyle here. So what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health and personal progress? On the New Health Club podcast, I talk to patients who have experienced the psychedelic treatment I talk to innovators, thought leaders, and disruptors from the emerging new world of psychedelics and mental wellness. Please enjoy the podcast. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs can be punishable by law. Please keep this in mind. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. Today I talk to Rosalind Watts, the clinical lead at Imperial Center for Psychedelic Research, connected through the Imperial College in London. Rosalind's TED Talk, Can Magic Mushrooms Unlock Depression from 2017, was one of the first talks I've ever seen on the topic of psychedelics. Last year I met Rosalind at a Starbucks near the Imperial College since I was writing an article for Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung on magic truffles. We talked for hours and I loved Rosalind's very human and very patient-driven approach to the topic of psychedelic therapy. Watts is one of the leading scientists in the field now. She works with Robin Card Harris and in April this year they just finished a clinical trial at the Imperial College in which they compared the effect of psilocybin versus the effect of antidepressants. More on that from Rosalind in the podcast. So, We talk about if COVID could be the first global ego death for all of us, which normally only happens in a psychedelic experience, that ego death. We talk about the future of psychedelic therapy and how this could become very normal, hopefully very soon. Please enjoy the podcast and Rosalind. So I'm very excited to have the famous Rosalind Watts. <laughs> today on my podcast well you kind of are in the meantime I would say um so I was watching your your famous TED talk last night again and um I think it was 2017 right when you explained to a very quiet audience like what psilocybin could do and it seems that what happened in the last couple of years it's like a total fast forward situation so um yeah Of course, it would be very interesting. How is your perception now with the kind of with the accelerating times that we live in right now? And, and also if it comes to psychedelics. Yes. It's so funny to think back to that that day of doing that talk and, 
yeah, standing out on that stage and feeling very unsure as to how people would respond to it and having this real sense that I knew that it was going to um, that it was going to accelerate and it was going to become something that more and more people were interested in. I did know that. Um, and I, at that point, because of it, there'd been so many years of stagnant waters because of the, the ban on psychedelics for so long and for so many years the research wasn't happening, I think, you know, many of us really hoped for acceleration. You know, there's so much work to do. We must, it's got to get going again. Um, but actually there are times now that it has started to accelerate accelerate so quickly that I feel a little bit I can see the other side too now I can see there are some potential risks with fast pace and yeah I I do wonder if sometimes the pace that we're at now might be accelerating partly due to kind of market forces and profit goals and and competition a race to the to the the top in a way and that those um forces are very powerful so um i think that my area which is much more about developing the therapeutic side is getting lost in that in that race because the therapeutic aspect of it is is not is not really seen as necessary for the first the first stage so I think that there are, you know, the, the acceleration, uh, there is a cost to going quickly, which is that we might not do it as well as we might if we were going a bit more slowly. You mean like with therapeutic, you mean like also um, that the integrational part is very important, not, not just like the, let's say the um, medical or the, the trip experience. Is, is that what you're saying? Yes, it's partly that. And it's also partly that... Um, I suppose the, well, yes, I think to do from what I've, so in the first psilocybin for depression study that was, I don't know, like five years ago now, six, seven years ago, um, it began and I joined partway through and, and then I interviewed all the participants from that study in a qualitative study. And that was what I based the, the TED talk on. And I think at that time, um, I had this feeling, it was a small sample, it was 20 people, and 17 of them had a positive effect, and three of them didn't feel anything. But there were a few of those sample of the positive effects that had quite complicated responses and needed a lot of integration, expert, extra inter integration. They were referred on for specialist support. And because in that small sample it was only one or two, that seemed like, oh, you know, I wonder what happened there. But now in the bigger sample that we've just done, so we've had 60 people through, or 59, I think, actually. And um, and in all these people and all the different responses to this kind of work, we've seen so much more of the complexity emerging. So it, the, the kind of therapeutic container that I can see required to hold this level of complexity and to hold... Um, the intensity of the experience for people for whom it is such, I mean, people with depression that are coming to this as a treatment are in many ways very, very different to people that are looking to explore consciousness. And it's a very, very different kind of way of working. And as I see um, with this other study, the, com you know, the complexity getting greater and greater as you see more and more people, the therapy frame, I think, required to hold it really safely is going to be 
so um, involved that it might be difficult to make a profit. So I think that the models probably that are going to go ahead are going to be streamlined to a level that makes them viable commercially, which I think then brings in an element of um, potential vulnerability from a clinical and therapeutic point of view. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, but even since like, I think when we met last year in, in May for that story, I think even it feels like five years ago, although yeah. it's just one year. But I mean, like when you talk about this acceleration, I mean, even through COVID, the acceleration will be even yeah. increased. So yeah. and uh, also you feel that how people kind of if, if they talk about themselves online, you, you, are, you can feel that. I mean, there's this topic of let's call it mental wellness or mental health yes. is even stronger because people yes. can't suppress it anymore. Oh. Or people who are very depressed um, have a really hard time to even balance out what they couldn't even balance out before. So how do you think this will affect the whole, you just said it, the whole um, international development right now? Because a lot of, we, we see a lot of new studies, we see a lot of new investors I think, when was it last week that um, Compass Pathway got this $80 million investment? So obviously this is, it seems to me that it's related to the time now where people mm -hmm. see, wow, this is, there's going to be, let's say, a wave, another wave of people that might come depressed or with a PTSD yes. symptom out of this. Yes. Well, I really hope that psychedelics can play a really important role in what's happening now. And the timing of it in many ways is, you know, it's, Thinking back to five years ago from, from that talk, at that point, if something like this had happened then, I don't think psychedelics, the psychedelic research field had enough of a platform then really to be able to be involved in the conversation. Whereas now, because there's been so much great research happening and, and so much interest from so many different people and investment, that, um, that psychedelics can be part of that conversation and part of the toolbox of different ways of dealing with, with suffering. So I'm very pleased about that. But I think... We still have to be very careful about the way we do it, because otherwise, if there is this great need for something and it pulls it forward because of that need, but it pulls it forward in a kind of diluted form, then the potential of psychedelics um, will, will be lower, I think, that we'll, we'll lose some of the potential and also will increase the risk for serious harm. So, um, yes, serious kind of psychological um side effects really like people talk about psych psychedelics as not really having side effects and of course they don't have any um apart from a headache that we see quite commonly they don't have they don't seem to have physical side effects unlike many other drugs and they also um are non-addictive physiologically they're not habit forming but um i think that as this plays out in a big in a big way um, I think we will see that there are there can be psychological side effects of this kind of work, and if people aren't held really really well after these kind of life changing, eye opening, incredibly intense experiences, then um, yeah, I think without that kind of holding, then there can be complications. So we need to temper the need for it and the speed at which we're trying to provide support for so many people that need it with an, an eye on problems that we haven't yet really that are just starting to emerge that we need to keep our eye on at the same time 
What do you think is a good pace or a good speed? Are you saying that let's say there need to be more more studies or um, there has to be another conversation also that's obviously coming now from a political point of view? I mean, especially in America, because there it's obviously seems to be much worse than than in Europe. And I think even like uh, Germany has their first um, study fund, I think, um, over two two point million. So, I mean, it yeah. seems there's kind of a, a train that's starting to <laughs> to leave the yeah. station. But, I mean, I'm, I'm curious what, what you think about what's your what's your idea of the, the pace mm. or the tempo. So, I think for the research, the, the faster that train and the bigger that train, the better. We are, you know, we're learning so much from the amazing research that's happening all the time. So, that train, I'm very happy with it going very fast, as long as it's done carefully and, you know, taking appropriate precautions but for studies to get through ethics committees they have to be very well designed so I'm not concerned about the research as long as it's kept you know ethical and um, you know the conflicts of interest are really kept an eye on I think research that train is is good to be a high-speed train and a very big one I think the the area the areas of, of speed that I'm more concerned about are the speed of the, the business side of things the for-profit lots and lots of companies popping up lots of psychedelic conferences all the time, all these new startups, all this psychedelic entrepreneurship, which is really, in some ways, really amazing. But, um, yeah, I mean, and also just the idea of, um, you know, the way a business works and shareholders and investment. And I think there are tensions between that model and the psychedelic care model. So I think that's one thing. Just, you know, I mean, people... I see, you know, some kind of people talking about it in such a, you know, a, a kind of financially oriented way about, you know, this amazing opportunity and the amount of money that can be made. And um, it's it's strange to see it that way, because I have the suspicion that when it's done adequately, it's not going to be this kind of money earner. So that there is a potential tension that when people are investing in this, this kind of incredible miracle cure, um, that they're not recognizing that to, for it to be a miracle cure or not even a miracle cure, but for it to be helpful, because I don't think it really ever is a miracle cure. But when it's when it's helpful for people, massively helpful, unbelievably helpful, life changingly helpful, it, when it's done to that extent, it's done, you know, it has to be done with care. So, um, so that's the thing, the, the business side of things and the potentially assumptions there that could be quite problematic further down the line. Um, I mean, you know, you probably saw that, um, they will call it parlor story, it was a very powerful story um, from the Orin Project, all about the potential risks of seeing this, this, this kind of way of working become a profit-driven approach. So that's the other thing in terms of speed. What I think the other channel, so they've got the research channel, the, like, business profit kind of channel and then the other one is the therapy um development channel so we know now that psychedelic experience that psychedelic outcomes are massively mediated by the experience in the in the the drug session that i don't think of it at all anymore as like a brain reset or something that you take and it resets your brain i mean those are some of the quotes from the participants i interviewed in the first study and then they became kind of splashed around the media um, and people sometimes describe this feeling of like my brain was defragged or I feel much more, you know, open and spacious. But um, that is one of the that is one of the effects they describe. But often they will describe that effect in hindsight 
um, after what actually at the time was possibly an incredibly difficult and challenging um, day for them. Like this, the, the psilocybin experience can be really very challenging and very tough. So um, because we're discovering more and more and more that to get those kind of good outcomes, it, it really is, it's about the experience someone is having and to make sure that that challenging experience, if it is challenging, is comes through to a positive benef- beneficial therapeutic outcome requires loads of of input from therapists so um just the idea that we can give people psilocybin or the other psychedelics and that they will get better without much intervening i think i don't i don't think that's quite right or safe so in order to see the kind of benefits that we imagine from the pilot studies in on a grand scale there is a huge amount of therapeutic skill and um, training that is going to be needed. And I think that is being, at the moment, that is, it, it's not developing to the, to the extent that we need it for the speed that the business train is going on. Uh, in Charité, there's this uh, department where people can come um, who had a disturbing psychedelic experience Not in a guided situation, <laughs> yeah. of course. So, and um, I think in what happens also now with this business aspect you're saying is that it seems to be merging for some people with kind of a broader sense of wellness. Yes. That sometimes, I mean, you can understand why that is so in demand now, but at the same mm-hmm. time, I also felt, I mean, I think we talked about this. I, I went to synthesis and, and I felt yes. so good about this because everybody, you felt everybody was so clear about what they were doing. Everybody yes. knew exactly <clears throat> what was coming. And yes. so, I mean, and I have to say without that kind of system, I don't think um, I would have been so comfortable in this thing. Yes. So, and I think you're absolutely right that the therapeutical part is still kind of not addressed a lot. So I'm, I'm wondering why there's not a startup that's just creating um, therapies around it and just not the, yes. a product kind of, yes. for example. Yes, I think that's, that's probably the thing. And also I think probably there is a kind of hope amongst startups that the, the therapy side of it will be minimal because yeah. um, the therapy is extremely expensive. And as soon as you start factoring in, two therapists for a full day the profit margin just ebbs away so I think probably people are hoping that it is more like a drug treatment that can be given with supervision Mm. instead of therapy yeah but I mean maybe you can talk a little bit about the latest studies at Imperial what you're just working on or what you can talk about at the moment Mm. everybody's excited to know that I'm sure Yes, well, we've just finished the psilocybin for depression study, which was uh, comparing psilocybin with an antidepressant SSRI. So half the group had escitalopram, which is in a, the kind of the, the best gold standard SSRI, and half the group had um, two high doses of psilocybin. And I wouldn't really say <clears throat> therapy; it was a it was a psychological support framework. Um, and the people in the, the people that had escitalopram also had two 
psilocybin sessions, but with an extremely low dose, a more like kind of placebo session. And they had um, they had the full day with the music and the support from the therapist and, and all the follow up meetings too. So we were kind of comparing psilocybin therapy to antidepressants plus a lot of music meditation support. So it wasn't quite a kind of you know yeah. the, the comparison isn't quite fair really. Also because the psilocybin treatment um, that we were giving was I would say the very very basic least that we would normally give. So it was like gold standard amazing escitalopram plus lots of other things to a very very basic hardly enough but just about enough model of psilocybin therapy but despite that we still saw i mean i haven't um i haven't looked at the results yet robin will be writing up those results um my contact is much more with the participants so i much much more get a sense of the qualitative the outcomes of people um but my sense is that we found that both conditions, you know, improved very much. Their depression for, for both groups was was treated very effectively. Um, my suspicion will be that the, the psilocybin group, um, their depression was treated much more quickly because um, SSRIs take a while to work. Whereas with, with psilocybin, you do see this thing where somebody comes in the next day and very often they will say, you know, I feel, wow, that, you know, the shift is quite immediate. Um the other difference, I think, will be that, you know, psilocybin has a, the headache as a side effect. But apart from that, you know, it's a pretty good side effect profile. Um, whereas antidepressants, you know, most of the people on antidepressants had real difficulties with them. You know, real, really bad side effects, really, really struggled with that. Maybe you can say for those who maybe don't know that, what what, are, what would you say are the main side effects of SSRIs? Um Oh, people have so many different ones. I'd say yeah. the main one that people describe is a feeling of like kind of dis detachment, a feeling a bit cut off from things. So feeling like, oh, I don't feel so bad anymore, but I also can't feel happy or good. And I feel like I'm just detached and I'm just kind of sated and numbed, a bit numbed. Um, and then the other ones are things like having a dry mouth. Um, having headaches often sometimes sometimes people have nausea sometimes people just describe feeling very unwell and um, sometimes people have gastro gastro stuff like funny tummy um changes with like urination patterns as well um and then sleep problems are very common sexual problems as well people losing their interest in sex um so yeah i'd say those ones are probably the most common it's enough terrible side effects yeah. Yeah. yeah okay but sorry but come but coming back to the to the study yeah. so yeah yes so um so you know working with these two treatments because i had a, a caseload of participants that i was seeing through the antidepressant line antidepressants line and the psilocybin line and of course we it was double blind so we didn't know which condition people were in um but you know like it's it's kind of hot and actually we were often surprised that in the actual psilocybin condition like um The, the, the one, the very, very low dose placebo dose it is still a kind of a mini, like a microdose. And actually, sometimes people did have full blown experiences from that. So I, I was sometimes fooled. I didn't always know which condition people were in. But um, yeah, like having seen people through their whole trajectory in, in follow ups as well. What I can see looking back is that the people through the psilocybin condition, like the high dose psilocybin, um, in a way, what's changed for them is... Their depression went, the depression has come back 
over after a couple of months, which is what we would really expect now. You know, people do tend to see people's depression come back after a couple of months. But really, people are, are, are changing and shifting the way they see their depression. So this is the biggest shift I can see. So in the, in the psilocybin session itself, it's all about staying with the difficult feelings, going through them, going into them and through them rather than avoiding them or resisting them, going into them, being with them, really fully feeling it. And then in the months afterwards, what seems to be happening to people, as I have continued to have kind of contact with them beyond the end of the study, is that people describe a difference in their identity. They feel more, um, they feel separate from their depression, like their depression was something inside them, but that they are bigger than it and that they can manage it. They can hold it. They, they, the depression pops up sometimes, but they can they can be with it. They don't have to feel that they're defined by it. So that's an incredible shift for people that they describe as quite profound. Um, and also the, the, you know, the, the connected feeling, like the feeling of um, having more, more care and compassion and love for themselves, that does seem to stay even when the depression comes back. So overall, I mean, there are lots of other benefits too, but overall, I think what we'll see with the, with the data is that both SSRIs and psilocybin um, are effective at bringing down the, the symptoms of depression, but that they work in opposite ways. So whereas SSRIs bring down the symptoms of depression, I think, by kind of um, numbing and minimising responsiveness, psilocybin um, brings down the symptoms of depression by maximising responsiveness and ability to feel lots of things and and hold hold those that whole repertoire of emotions and accept it more and that not only does the psilocybin condition bring down um symptoms of depression but it also increases a whole range of other measures that i don't think ssris do increase self-compassion increase openness increase connectedness all these things also in, also improve so i think we will see that the psilocybin treatment overall that the profile of it is pretty impressive compared to the SSRI profile well I think I mean even I just did this I mean it was a high dose at, at synthesis but even after yes. this I felt the most significant thing is that you can say okay I, let's say I'm sad and then you just can say okay I'm sad and you just can yes. be sad and then maybe eventually 10 minutes later, you're not sad anymore, but it's, yeah. it's like, you can really look at, at the, almost like an object. You can yes. actually see differences between various states of, of feelings and without really getting into them and not being able to look at them anymore. So, I mean, I, and I mean, this comes in very simple, tiny moments. So, but, I mean, of course, a lot of people that actually get in, getting in touch with us here is that a lot of people have questions about microdosing because obviously you won't get medication so far and then it's all over the place and every Vice article, it's another <laughs> microdosing article um, yes. every week. Yes. So, and I mean, obviously there's a study that's, I think, starting now in Maastricht, I think, with Kim mm -hmm. Kuiper. Yes, yes. Which is probably very interesting, I think. But I mean, so, and again, especially now, I think there will be people, way more people than ever before who would mm -hmm. actually like to look into that. But at the same time, uh, it's not really researched so far. Yeah. So yeah. What, what is your take on, on, on microdosing as a scientist also, maybe? I mean, I think that 
it's you know it's really hard to know until we get loads more you know until until the studies come back and we can really look at the data it's, it's really hard to know but um i guess i i i think it may well have a place for people i mean the first thing i think people's responses to it are going to be so very different i get lots of emails from people giving me kind of you know describing their experiences with different things and the microdosing reports i get from people are that you know for some people um, it helps them be more creative and more focused. But then for lots of other people, they've, they've tried microdosing and it's completely interrupted their day because they wanted to take a microdose and go to work and be creative and be focused. And they've ended up just crying or they've gone into difficult emotion and like, or, or they feel really kind of um, overly relaxed and can't focus. It's so, the way it works for people is very, very, very varied. And I think it varies for one person across different days as well. So... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really see it as something that, I mean, if it helps people focus more and be creative and it helps to be more productive at work, then I suppose, you know, who am I, who am I to judge that? But I also, um, I really see psychedelics as tools that can really help us change the way, the the kind of settings that we're on. If you think of like the default mode network as a kind of analogy Mm -hmm. of, of the life we've been living and then what's happening now with COVID is there's this big port, like this big deactivation of the default mode network because, you know, we are, we're having a big ego death in a way. Things are stopping, things are pausing. And then the default mode network is like the, the daily chatter, like, oh, do this, do this, do this, has gone, has stopped. And people have sat um, and been with things more. They haven't been able to do so many things. It's more about being because we're just being at home and being with ourselves and I think that that, you know, we, we have the potential for um, building on this very helpful in some ways, although very painful for others, um, intervention from nature that is, is bringing about this huge pause and this huge default mode network interruption. And that to use psilocybin or any of the other psychedelics as ways of like helping us with the ego, um, uh, with the ego's manifesto the ego's agenda of doing 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 and being more successful and getting more and all of that of course we can use it that way because psychedelics are non-specific amplifiers and that's the thing about microdosing is you know if it is effective it's proved to be effective some people think it might just be placebo i think it's probably is doing something um but it's amplifying something so it's different on different days because it's amplifying different things according to second setting so um, which is, of course, going to be more variable when you're microdosing than when you're doing a big dose. When you're doing a big dose, you're in usually a very controlled setting with a particular intention, with a particular kind of legacy of that kind of work. But with microdosing, people are just introducing it to their normal day. So the second setting is as variable as your days are. So it's going to amplify what, what your second setting is that day. So I think that if we choose to amplify, you know, our old concerns about doing things and being productive then that's okay. But we could also choose instead to amplify something very different. And that would be something more in line with the kind of, like the dose you did at the the, the, the Mm -hmm. synthesis retreat you went on, which is actually I'm going to stop doing, carrying on, being productive and doing this and being busy. I'm going to go into myself and I'm going to sit with the sadness. And so I think that the, the big doses offer opportunities when they're done in really well managed retreat settings like light synthesis offer us an opportunity to go 
beyond the day-to-day, beyond the ego, beyond the business, and really go down to the real feelings that have been long suppressed. So my fear about microdosing is that it, it allows business as usual to continue. Interesting. Fact, you know, mm. it, it kind of, in a way, it almost like amplifies. It, it makes you, it can make you more effective at, at business as usual. And my hope for psychedelics, although sometimes I think maybe it's a naive hope, is that they could interrupt business as usual a bit like COVID has, and bring us to our knees. You know, bring us to our knees. Which it does. I mean, Which it does. I know. You can totally say that. Yeah, and, and bring us to our animal. <laughs> Our, our animal selves, you know, like if you think about ayahuasca, people are vomiting in a room together and people sometimes pay vast amounts of money to do that. And it's because we have a longing, I think, to come back to who we really are. Well, I mean, this is the, I remember shortly before COVID, I saw this um, YouTube video of, of Gabo Mate explaining like how the disconnection from nature and other human beings basically leads to depression And then yeah. like a couple of weeks later, um, it's exactly what's happening, basically. And it's interesting how you see people going, I mean, you can see it on Instagram, people going into nature that is kind of around them because they don't have to go very, can't go mm -hmm. very far right now. Yeah. And taking pictures of, oh, this is a tree, look at it. <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, okay, right? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. and I have the same thing. I'm really longing for this nature experience. Yeah. And I kind of, I mean not only me, I think a lot of people, according to Instagram, suppressed that for a long yes. time, kind of. The participants from, from the first psilocybin for depression study, when I interviewed them six months after their session, their psilocybin sessions about, you know, what had changed for them, they 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 talked about um, this this incredible, some of them talked about this incredible kind of um, awakening of a connection to nature that they hadn't felt before. So they suddenly, they understood about nature and it was like remembering about nature. And I think it'll be interesting to look at the analysis of qualitative reports of the participants from the study we've just done too and see if we, if we see the same thing. I'm sure we will. And, and Taylor, Taylor Lyons, who's um, just done a study at Imperial looking at insights that um, healthy participants have had when taking psychedelics. And I think... Her, her nature connection data is really amazing that lots and lots of people describe this sense of, yeah, just a hunger for nature is, is really growing. Yeah. And um, my colleague, Sam Gandhi, who is, he's been doing work, he's an ecologist and he's been doing work on psychedelics and nature connection. And he is very, very busy right now with, with inquiries from people who are very interested in this idea of bringing nature into the integration. So I think a combination of covid And the hunger for nature that's going to come afterwards, so many people, and the hunger for being together in some way, plus the introduction of psychedelics, you know, the, the acceleration of psychedelics as treatments for mental health problems and for wellness, I, I think we're going to see some very exciting developments in um, bringing those things together. And I, I've kind of got in my own mind like places where people can come for community building and kind of communal psychedelic integration. So people are going to do retreats in different places and just imagine places like in, in other countries where it's a beautiful place in nature and where people can gather together to do... We've already started doing psychedelic integration workshops in, in nature mm -hmm. and people love them. It's, you know, it's, it's such a lovely way of bringing people together. So I think that post-COVID, 
um, people being able to integrate psychedelic experiences together in nature will be kind of essential. So Sam Gandhi, who's the, the, the colleague of mine who's doing this research with psychedelics and nature connectedness, his family are a kind of nature enthusiast family, and his mum is an is a, a expert on birds, and they, they, they keep bees, and yeah, he's, he's very interested in, in lions being mushrooms. They've, they've got all sorts of different projects going on. So where they are, which is where I am now in lockdown, um, we're looking at this place and just thinking... We just need to bring people here. We need people to be able to come here and sit. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful place in nature, out, one hour outside of London. So we're thinking of ways of bringing people here so that we can learn. Because some of, in terms of thinking about the training of therapists, which is so important, my best training, my most valuable source of training has been through the integration of participants from the first study and um, and a psychedelic integration group that we started a couple of years ago. Because in a way, the session, I mean, I, I still need to learn so much about the actual acute administration phase too. There's so much to learn. But in terms of the, the therapeutic journey, the integration is where you learn. So if we have these places where people that are integrating psychedelic experiences could, can come and share with each other and therapists are there too, the therapists learn from the people, the participants or the, you know, the experiences and the experiences can have access to therapists and nature. So I think it's a kind of combination that just naturally needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, you have to tell us how you got into psychedelics <laughs> in the first place, which is a while ago, I guess. Like, um... Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so I, well, when I first went to university, magic mushrooms were, I went to university in a city called Birmingham, And I, funnily enough, I actually lived above a magic mushroom shop because they were legal at that time. So there was a period really? of about... Wow. There were, yeah, there was a period of about... I can't remember how many years where magic mushrooms were legal. The Camden Market used to sell them. And so when I went to university, um, it wasn't really kind of... There were lots of people drinking lots of alcohol. There were lots of sports teams and kind of, you know, lots of funny old alcohol initiations going on but my friendship group didn't really drink alcohol and so because we lived above a magic mushroom shop just purely by chance and um, that was kind of you know that would be our way of uh you know that would be what we would sometimes do at the weekends and I guess it was um it was a very interesting time because whereas other people were out getting really drunk we um we we were exploring ourselves with each other so on a Saturday night, instead of going out and kind of, you know, getting wasted, we would sit in a circle, there were like eight of us that lived in this house, eight women, and we would sit in this house and we would share about our mothers and about our lives and about our loves and our pains. And we, we did that the whole way through university, I'd say, I mean, not very regularly, like, but, you know, like we had a, a few like really seminal kind of moments where we, we really... At the time, I was always wondering, like, is this a harmful thing? Because obviously, you know, even though they were legal, there was still that slight stigma about them. It still seemed something quite fringe to be doing. But something inside me knew that there was, that it was, it was really positive. But then anyway, I mean, that was years ago now. Like, that was, God, like, <laughs> nearly 20 years ago. And then, so then I had a break. So after, like, discovering them there and kind of knowing that they were benign when used carefully and well, substance, like, plants because it was mushrooms um I then kind of forgot about them until 
um, as a clinical psychologist, my best friend had depression. She went to do ayahuasca and it helped her massively. And so I was interested in ayahuasca as a treatment for depression. And then through my research into ayahuasca and what it was, I realized that DMT and psilocybin are, you know, quite similar in some ways. And so that's how I found the Imperial Research Project. So it was funny, it was like a long ago memory of like something that had been quite special to me, combining with my work and yeah, seeing my best friends and how much she was helped by it. So that's when you decided um, this is going to be a new path also as a psychologist, right? Or like a therapist. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd also, I never, because although those years at university when we were using mushrooms in that way, like... I could see that they were, it was a therapeutic thing to be doing. I still didn't associate magic mushrooms with therapy or psychology or, or that kind of thing. It, it was something else. But then it made such sense to me as soon as I, you know, as soon as I looked into the ayahuasca research, it just made such, such sense. And actually, I remember as well having a conversation with somebody whose mom, a friend of mine, whose mom had been a psychotherapist. I remember him once mentioning that she had used MDMA with couple clients. This is years and right. years ago. Mm. Legal. And at the time I thought, you know, so interesting that these, these things that it's, it's kind of widely known, in, you know, increase these things of like empathy and love and connection, why they're not being used in therapy. Because I've been working as a clinical psychologist, working in the NHS and, and really, you know, respecting different types of psychotherapy, but also becoming slightly disillusioned that yeah that they don't always they don't always work for people when they're not you know especially when they're done in a very brief setting like you know six sessions of cbt for example is not effective for many people so the idea that you could you know combine therapy with with something that opens people up and allows them to get so much more out of it and allows them to trust you and allows them to do those painful places just seem like, you know, it's like a light bulb moment of like, oh my goodness, of course, why would we not be doing that? Mm. So, yeah. Okay. And, and so what is your, if you, let's say, could make a wish, <laughs> what is your perfect outcome of the whole new, like we said in the beginning, very mm. accelerated Yes. very interesting very exciting situation yes. with psychedelics right now so i at horizons conference of psychedelics last october and um, i was watching a panel on different models for you know the future of psychedelics and uh, rachel aden from synthesis did a wonderful yeah. talk so i really i'm really like very 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 supportive of what they're doing there i think they're doing really brilliant work um There was another talk in that panel by um, Bennett Zellner, who is from, he's, um, he's an economics professor. And he, um, he has some links with USONA, I think, and he's developing um, this, this model called the pollinator model. And the pollinator model is looking at how psilocybin, when it's manufactured by a not-for-profit not format, can he's developing these models for kind of disseminating um, psilocybin therapy based around a kind of community care model, I'd say. So, um, I mean, people, should, you know, if people are interested in this kind of thing, it's, it's kind of alternative to the for-profit kind of, um, 
more typical kind of business approach. It's, 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 it's one about community, essentially. So it would be about developing centres where um, psilocybin therapy or, you know, other psychedelic therapies are accessible and it's kind of run by the community for the community. Um, and, yeah, it looks like a very exciting model to me. So that would be my wish that my real wish is that, you know, a lot of my work has been looking at connectedness, psychedelics, impre- like increasing connectedness. And my real wish is that the psychedelic research community and the psychedelic business community um, and all the people that, that, you know, want and need this kind of work can join together in some way that we can create communities where, where psilocybin can be used in a community, safe, connected setting with really good social support and integration support and networks, really good networks and structures, support structures, um, rather than the kind of standard medical model where it's like a treatment and it's, you know, coming to a hospital and getting this treatment and then kind of going back to your world again. It's like creating little worlds, you know, creating connected communities where people can, um, <clears throat> yeah, jo- join together for something. That would be my wish. Okay. I mean, it makes, I mean, to- I, makes total sense to me, but what you say. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Would, do you have liked that if you, after your synthesis experience? Yeah. Like Actually, um, for example, we have this, we still have this WhatsApp group. And I mean, it's not that all the time we're writing, but I mean, every yeah. time we're writing, like exchanging, for example, the fantastic fungi movie <laughs> or um, yeah. other things. Like one very nice gentleman was from England. So I, we had a very nice conversation after the whole thing. So, and then every time we write on that group, you have a little bit of a moment where like, ah, hmm, that afternoon. So it, it kind of reminds you of the, the experience. And I mean, I think... Um, it's really to, if you kind of talk to people who have done this or like are in touch with people who have done this, I mean, it sounds like corny, but it is a different way of conversation. And I think this not pretending thing is a secret wish, including myself back then for so many people that Mm -hmm. they can admit things and say, well, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I experienced as a resolution And I always thought I was this person, but I'm not this person. And I, I mean, yeah. I, now I can just talk about myself, but I mean, I just, I wasn't able to do this before really. And you know what I mean? It's a vulnerability, isn't it? It's a vulnerability. Like shame has gone completely. Yes. <laughs> That's the yes. first thing. Yes. Yes. The Brenny so. Brown, have you looked at any Brenny Brown work? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot. Because I, I don't know if she's ever like, I don't know if she's interested in psychedelics at all, but it does feel well, like psychedelic work is a way of opening up the kind of things she's talking about. And I think it is that kind of, I don't think vulnerability is the right word, but it's like the kind of tenderness of like, of truth, of like authenticity of like, this is who I am. And it's like, so powerful when you work with people like that. And it's actually very rare. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, like it's, it's an incredible and very noticeable thing when, when you're working and you can see that, that you, you can feel that kind of heart to heart connection because the boundaries, the boundaries aren't there. Yeah. I mean, that was super interesting. And I love that we had like a, also like your scientific, the moment yeah. you introduce science to the yes. picture, people are like, mm, yeah. okay, there's a point yeah. to it. Uh, yes. So that's why really? it's really important. Mm, yeah. It's a very important part of the conversation for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was very interesting. Oh, thank you, Anne. <laughs>